This is They Create Worlds, episode 135, The Famicom Disk System. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. Today, like last time, we will discuss the Famicom, but not just any Famicom, the Famicom Disk System, which was totally not related to the original. Well, we will get to the uh, family computer disk system over the course of this episode, but it won't be our starting point, because now that we have launched the Famicom into the world after... All of that hand-wringing over cost and price and getting the supplies they needed, the components they needed in the numbers that they needed. They have a system. It's going to come out July the 15th, 1983, and we need to see what happens next. Spoiler alert, it gets big. Really, really big. As big as the universe? Really, really mind-bogglingly big? That would be quite a feat. No, I don't think we quite got there, but certainly much bigger than those digital watches everyone used to think were a neat idea. We moved on from digital watches to smartphones, which everyone and their brother has, and possibly babies. I'm not quite so sure about that one yet. To start off with, we have the Famicom. We have a name. We have colors. We know it's all soldered right onto the motherboard. We slapped some cartridges in there with games from the arcade. We are pretty much set to go. That's right. How do we want to sell this thing? So on July 15th, 1983, the family computer is released to retail in Japan. 100,000 systems are made available for the launch. And three games. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. Pretty much all the arcade games. Pretty much all the big hits. They've had other arcade games, but those are the games that resonated. Donkey Kong was obviously the biggest hit, though it's a little long in the tooth at this point, having come out in late 1981. Arcades move fast in this period. Donkey Kong Jr. and Popeye, not quite as big a hit, but they'll do for now. That's all they have. It's really not a really compelling launch lineup, only because of the age of the product. Donkey Kong has not been the hot thing for a while now. But at this point, Nintendo is still very much the Donkey Kong company. That's really where they made their money. That's what they're known for. So that's what they're continuing to milk. At least because it is a couple of years old, they can bring out a very faithful version of it, whatever that is worth. The launch goes fine. It's not terrible at all, but it's not great either. They don't really advertise it. They have relatively old software available for it, and nobody's quite sure what to make of this thing. The real turning point is when the game Mario Brothers comes along. Not Super Mario Brothers, but Mario Brothers. We've talked about the creation of Mario Brothers as a coin-op game, because of course it was a coin-op game first. We did that in our Gunpei Yokoi episode, because Yokoi was very involved with that alongside Shigeru Miyamoto. We don't need to go into detail on that there. What we can go into detail on, though, is the way that it was very deliberately tied in with the Famicom. Gorge, Florent Gorge, who is the current resident expert on Nintendo, in his book on the history of the Famicom, 
en français, not available in English. He lays this out as a deliberate strategy. I don't know where he gets that information from, though his information is usually correct. It very well may have been a deliberate strategy, but I wouldn't swear to that 100%. The way Gorge puts it, Mario Brothers was deliberately done on relatively weak coin-op hardware so that graphically it was not as impressive as many of the other games coming out in Japan at the same time as it was. Now, that isn't to say it's ugly. It wasn't ugly. And that isn't to say the gameplay wasn't there, because the gameplay was definitely there. But it was definitely far more in the vein of a 1981 game like Donkey Kong than it was in the vein of the games that were coming out in 1983. According to Gorge, this was a deliberate tactic, because what they did is they released Mario Brothers in the arcade. Then, within a month of that release in the arcade, after they gave a chance for players to kind of get to know the game and play the game and enjoy the game, they announced that it would be coming to the Famicom in September of 1983. Because they used slightly older hardware, the version that was going to be on the family computer was going to basically be arcade perfect. So Mario Brothers becomes a hit in the arcade. I mean, it's not as big a hit as Donkey Kong, but I mean, it's fine. It's successful. Now they're telling everyone, and you will have this in the home right away, and it's going to be just like playing it in the arcade. This is also the period, starting in the fall, where they start doing television commercials for the system. I don't know how much all of that was calculated, whether they knew Mario Brothers was coming, and so they figured why waste time on commercials until we have something a little more current in terms of software to advertise. I don't have that level of detail on this. But whatever the reason, in September you have the commercials hitting, you have a hot arcade property hitting. At launch, Famicom games were 3,800 yen each, so you're talking probably somewhere in the range of $25 to $30. I mean, the, the, the original games were actually really cheap. So rather than you're feeding your quarters into the beast at the game center, you can just bring it home. It's relatively cheap. It looks just like the arcade. It's a hit. So come play Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers, indeed, is a quite successful game. It's the first Famicom game that tops 1 million in sales. I don't know how long it took to reach 1 million in sales. It didn't do it overnight. I mean, the Famicom hasn't even sold 1 million yet. It's the first game that does eventually reach over 1 million, sells about 1.63 million overall. Sales start to really pick up throughout the fall. Nintendo takes a strategy. They're kind of the last company to do this. They take the same strategy in their marketing of the system when it first comes out that has been used basically by every video game system going all the way back to the Magnavox Odyssey. They do this whole focus on the family thing. The focus on the family, bringing the family all together to play games in the home, has usually been an effective marketing strategy, or at least perceived to be an effective marketing strategy, because the main competitor with the console game in these days is the coin-op game. The coin-op game is in arcades. Arcades are evil places, Jeff. There's delinquents there. They go smoking, and they cut school, and they're beating up the other kids for their lunch money so they can go hang out in the arcade all day smoking and playing games. These are evil places, Jeffrey. Evil. Dens of thievery with leather jackets, brass knuckles, whips, spiked collars, 
just look at any of the Double Dragon games, and that pretty much sums it up right there. Exactly. It's a Double Dragon game right there in the building. (laughs) You know, there's the perception that arcades are these dens full of near-do-wells. They're poorly lit in order to see the screens better and have those colors really pop on the screens. And, of course, any place that's poorly lit has the automatic connotation that you can hide in the corner and do bad things. A lot of arcades aren't closely monitored. The shopping mall arcades are, but a lot of your just-off-the-street arcades don't really have a lot of monitoring. So there's just that bad reputation. So one of the tools that the home games have always had in their arsenal is, okay, maybe we can't have as flashy a graphics and as cool a sound effects and these nice, comfortable control schemes and everything else, but you don't have to pay 25 cents a pop. Your kids are going to be at home playing these games where they're safe instead of going out to the arcades and playing these games and who knows what else they're getting into. I think the parent had to take some responsibility. You brought them to the arcade in all likelihood and gave them money. If you really think about it, all of these kids are very dependent on mom and dad for transportation and financial support in order to do this. Or at least the financial part of it. Remember, a lot of them are older teenagers, so they may have cars and may have jobs, too, that their parents let them keep some of the money. But yeah, they obviously still have some dependence, but not as much as, you know, a six-year-old would. There's often this theme of bring the family home around the video game system. That kind of dies out by the late 80s. There's kind of enough of a gamer class, if you will, that you no longer need to market it to mom and dad. Mom and dad kind of know what video games are. You just have to market it to the kids, and then they can go to mom and dad and be, can we have an NES? 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 And then the rest takes care of itself. But in these days, there was still a lot of marketing towards mom and dad. So Nintendo takes that track with the family computer, and they're probably really about the last company to ever do so. All of their commercials are featuring the family gathered around the television, and they market those games that they think parents will really like. They do the educational games. The NES is, I think, really the last major console, again, where educational games are an important part of the early lineup. Well, I, for one, don't recall any educational games on the Famicom or the NES. Well, there was Donkey Kong Math, which did also come out in the United States. This is a thing that did exist on both sides of the Pacific Ocean. They released Donkey Kong Math, rather Donkey Kong Junior Math, I should say, in December 1983. That's their big educational release for the end of the year. They very quickly get away from the educational games. Like I said, they're really the last company to do it. After the system becomes successful, they realize they don't need to do it anymore. Educational games have always been a Trojan horse. That's why all of these early systems had them. But after the NES, it's not needed anymore. Once society knows what video games are, even if mom and dad only barely remember Pac-Man from when they played it in college back in the day, once video games are kind of an established toy... You don't need to lure mom and dad in with educational games anymore. So they do Donkey Kong Jr. math, but they also do some adult games. And I don't mean adult games in the sense of triple X. I mean games that are actually targeted at the adults in the household. Typing of the dead? (laughs) No, they do a Mahjong game. That releases in August of 1983. Mahjong is very popular with a certain set, so they put that out. 
it's a massive success. Let me tell you, their marketing plan to market to adults as well as kids actually really works very well for them in the early days when they're trying to get established. The educational stuff, I mean, it doesn't sell much. Nobody cares about it. They give up on that. But Mahjong, Mahjong sells over 2 million units. Believe me, the six-year-olds aren't playing the Mahjong game. That's not something that's going to hold their interest, the six, seven, eight-year-olds. That really is the adults probably buying that game. Mahjong was a major important early seller because they were marketing to adults as well as kids. They had the sports games that came out very early. The sports games appeal to both sets. They appeal to both kids and, to a certain degree, adults. They released the baseball game December 1983, the tennis game in January of 84, even more important than both of those, the golf game in May 1984. These are all based on coin-op titles that they had done previously. All three of these are really big hits. Tennis sells over a million units. Baseball sells over two million units. Golf is the runaway success of this set of games. Golf sells nearly two and a half million units. Some of those are selling to kids, but a lot of that is also selling to adults. So by doing this kind of one-two punch of having a coin-op hit that they translate to the home very quickly in Mario Brothers, and then having games that appeal to children and adults, like the sports games, and then even having a game that really mostly appeals to adults, like Mahjong, they're kind of able to blanket the whole population. It's relatively reasonably priced, 15,000 yen. The cartridges are really reasonably priced, 3,800 yen. It starts to sell, quite frankly, it becomes pretty successful. So just to give an idea of what we're talking about when we say successful in this time period, by January of 1984, remember the system was released in the middle of July. What they're announcing in January 1984 is basically what they sold in the first six months of release. They sold 440,000 systems in those six months. Remember that this is not like today where when the PS5 comes out or the Switch comes out, everyone and his brother is champing at the bit to get the next hottest video game system. There had never been a really successful programmable console in Japan. The consoles were too expensive, particularly the ones imported from the West. There weren't that many interesting games for them. So there wasn't that developed a market. The market was very much more focused on handheld systems. This is a market that basically doesn't exist, and in six months, they sell 440,000 units. That's 80% of console sales in Japan. From the very beginning, they're dominating the market. Epoch's still there with its cassette vision, but it's not doing much. Sega came out with its first console, the SG-1000, at the same time as Nintendo. In fact, they released it as a console because of what Nintendo was doing. They were going to release it as a computer with some console features, the SC-3000, and then they came up with the SG-1000 modification because Nintendo was coming with the Famicom. It sells a fraction of that. It it sells like 160,000 units. Well, I should say 160,000 units in its first year. So even less than that, probably more like 50 or 60,000 units in its first six months. Nintendo is on top of the world here. They have the winning product, and they have something that looks like it's going to be able to grow the market. They just have one problem. They've released all the good arcade games. 
They've released the sports games. They've released the Donkey Kong games. They've released the Mario game. Now they need more games. They have a very small staff that can work on them. You see, Nintendo, when they launched the Famicom, were bound and determined to only make games for the system themselves. They saw what happened to Atari in the United States, where the market became oversaturated because all of these companies started releasing games for the VCS. We've, of course, talked about this many times in our episodes on The Crash and on Atari and everything else. One of the main takeaways Yamauchi had from that is that they cannot let other companies on the system. They can't let the market be flooded. Nintendo was never planning to allow other companies to make games on the system. This meant that their own developers had to make everything. They had very few developers. It was a small development group. So they could put out a game every couple of months, but if they did that, they were only going to be simple games. They were never going to have a kind of breakthrough stunning game because they're riding the tiger and they can't get off. There's no time to make something complicated. If you look at a lot of the early games, a lot of them are basically just ripoffs of Namco coin-op games. We've talked a little bit about this kind of Nintendo fascination with Namco before. A few of the early games is Miyamoto does a maze game, Devil World, released in late 84, that is a Pac-Man clone. They do a racing game, F1 Race, which is basically a pole position clone. They've got the sports games. They create a gun for the system. They create the zapper for the system in 1984. They're already afraid. Part of the reason they do this, according to Gunpei Okoi, who was the person that actually created the zapper, they were already afraid that the very simple games that they were making for the system were going to bore people, that there was going to come a point where people were not going to buy NES games anymore because they figure they have Donkey Kong, they have Donkey Kong Jr., they have Mario Brothers. Maybe they have the Mahjong in one of the sports games. They're not going to buy anything else because the games that Nintendo is coming out with are not necessarily any better than those games. So they come up with a strategy to start releasing add-ons in order to keep the market strong. That's why they decide to do a zapper, because by doing a zapper, they can adapt the gun games like Wild Gunman and Duck Hunt that they've released in the arcade to the home. That's a big part of the reason why they do the robotic operating buddy, the robot, that launches with a system in the U.S. in 85. It's why they do Family Basic, where they release a keyboard with a version of Basic so that you can make your own programs. They come up with this idea of we're going to release one big peripheral a year, and hopefully that will allow us to extend interest in the system because we can put our hardware engineers on that and our software guys won't be quite so overwhelmed. Well, that's great and all, but it's still not going to be enough. Fortunately, Namco is looking at this new system, the Famicom, that's doing really well. And the engineers and programmers at Namco see an opportunity here. Masaya Nakamura decides that they need to be on the Famicom. He was visionary in doing this. Not every Japanese company was looking at the Famicom as something to invest their time and effort in. These companies are largely coin-op companies, you know, the big companies in Japan, the Konamis, the Capcoms, the Namcos. You have a small number of companies that are releasing games on microcomputers as well. We've talked about that. We did an episode on that. These companies are less likely, at least at this early stage, to jump into the console market because cartridges are so expensive. We've talked about this over and over. 
a cartridge with ROM memory in it is way more expensive than a disc or a cassette tape. That is a real barrier to entry to companies. Namco wants in, and it just so happens that one of their programmers reverse-engineered their hit game Galaxian from several years ago to work on the Famicom. So they did something very similar to what Electronic Arts did to Sega. Nakamura comes to Nintendo and they say, we would like to make games for your system. By the way, we've already reverse-engineered the system and gotten our games to work, so we're kinda gonna do this whether you like it or not. We would rather work with you than (laughs) pseudo-against you. Exactly. Meanwhile, at the same time that this is going on, you have another company, Hudson Soft, on the computer game end that is interested in getting on the Famicom. The reason for this is I mentioned a second ago that they did a keyboard peripheral with Family Basic. Family Basic was actually created by Hudson Soft. Hudson Soft had its own version of Basic, and they had been working with Sharp, who was an ally of Nintendo. So with Sharp kind of being the intermediary, Hudson, because their basic is a really good basic, ends up getting the contract to do the basic cartridge for the family basic keyboard component. So Hudson at the same time is like, well, you know, we've had this relationship. We've made this game for you. Incidentally, in return for that, Hudson got to publish a few Nintendo games on computer platforms. This is back in the day before Nintendo was as careful about that kind of thing. We've had this profitable arrangement on Family Basic. We know how your system works because you had to tell us how your system works. Why don't we keep this partnership going? Why don't you let us bring some more games from this PC world into your system? Yamauchi at this point is basically like, okay, fine. We've got companies that want to do it. We need them to do it because this is not working. Our programmers are overworked. They can only make simple games because they can't take more than two or three months to make a single game to hit my release schedule. Let's just do this. But we are going to do it on our terms. If I can't shut third-party companies out of the market, I am at least going to maintain some kind of control over my market. So he creates a licensing structure. When I say he, I'm sure he wasn't necessarily personally making it up, but him and his administrative staff come up with a licensing agreement where basically, okay, if you're going to be taking sales away from my games just by virtue of being in the market, then you're going to have to pay us a royalty for the privilege to make games on our system. Hudson and Namco are both like, okay, fine. Let's all make money together. They become the first two companies that become Nintendo licensees with Really a pretty generous licensing agreement at this point. I mean, they have to pay the royalty, but at this point, they're allowed to make their own cartridges. They're allowed to release whatever they want, however many they want, without Nintendo getting involved. They have pretty broad latitude on what they want to do. This certainly isn't the same deal that we had in the United States where you had two games you could release a year. Nintendo is making all the cartridges. That is it. Done. End of story. Right. These first companies have a pretty good deal going for themselves. Just as all of this is getting ready to come together, and just as it looks like things are going to reach new heights for the system, Nintendo has its first crisis. Reports start coming in that in their game Baseball, which, remember, is a very popular game. It's one of the big ones. Baseball 
sells over 2 million units. Again, it hasn't sold all 2 million of those yet. There aren't even 2 million Famicoms out, but it's one of the big sellers on the system. Word is coming out that over time, the lines that define the field, the baseball field, start to disappear if you play the game for too long. Well, that's not good. Nope. So they look into this. Nintendo looks into this. And what they've discovered is that the picture processing unit, the so-called PPU, which was the graphics chip of the system, we didn't really talk about that in our development episode, but in addition to the processor manufactured by Ricoh, there was a custom graphics chip, the PPU. Turns out that that thing hadn't been sufficiently tested and optimized. It would overheat after long periods of use. That would cause strange graphical things to happen, like the disappearing baseball lines. It may even cause games to freeze in certain situations. So this is bad. Especially considering you probably have close to a million units out there at this point. At this point, they have about 500,000 that have sold. They probably have a few hundred thousand more than that that have been manufactured and are ready to enter the channel. It's probably less than a million, but it's moving in that direction. Yamauchi decides to take a bold step, and he says, we will recall every last one and fix them. People can return their systems, no questions asked. All the systems that we have in warehouses that we haven't sold yet, we're not going to sell them until we overhaul them. Anything that retailers already have sitting on their shelves, they can send back and we'll overhaul them. We are going to fix every last one of these. It gave them a very bad financial hit at the end of 83, beginning of 1984. Not bad enough to sink the company, obviously. They're still around, but enough to be very worrying. Enough that if consumer confidence wasn't restored by the recall and people stopped buying family computer systems, it could put Nintendo in a very serious position. But it ends up being the right thing to do because they fix it, and instead of that situation eroding consumer confidence, it strengthened consumer confidence because it showed that Nintendo was a company that was going to stand by its product and was going to release a quality product, and if they did not have a quality product, they would fix it until they did. They also made two other changes at about this time, because as the system got out into market, they were learning more. As I think we discussed in the last episode, though I'm not positive, when the system shipped, the controller had square buttons. The A and B button. They were square. Well, it turned out that, again, with lots of play and lots of button mashing and gotta go fast and press, 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 those buttons would get stuck in the down position. The corners would catch and they would get stuck. So they decided, okay, we're going to do round buttons. So the square button Famicoms are pretty rare because it was only kind of the first set of systems that had the square buttons. Everything after that was round buttons, just like it was in the U.S. and Europe and everywhere else where it was released. Then, of course, they also discovered that the combination of the relatively short controller cords with the hard wiring into the system meant that people were breaking their controllers left and right. Wasn't even so much people like tripping over them on the floor necessarily, but if you get really into the game and you're kind of got full body English going on while you're trying to do these things and, you know, you kind of pull the controller back towards you or pull it off to the side, you know, when you're kind of making movements because you're so in tune with the game, because those controller cords were so short and there wasn't really any give in them, a lot of people were breaking their controllers. Because the controllers were hardwired, 
that meant that the entire system was no good until you could send it in for repair. They decided, okay, fine. I guess even if it may be slightly more expensive, I'm not sure if it really was or not, but even if it's slightly more expensive, we'll have controller sockets and we'll have detachable controllers so that people won't wreck their whole system. Also makes that whole zapper and peripheral thing easier. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. They get all that sorted out, and now they've got the third parties coming online, starting with Hudson and Namco. That's where we get from a system that's doing pretty okay to a system that just takes off. Before we get into that, I was wondering with the zapper, did they bring that out after they did the whole detachable controller thing? Or did they have a version for the older systems where it would connect in underneath the Famicom? The zapper did not come out until early 1984. I believe by that time they had already gone to the detachable controllers. That's a good question. I don't know if they made some kind of special accommodation for people that had the early systems. It's an excellent question. There may be an answer for it that's known by other people. That's something I do not know off the top of my head. But yeah, I believe by the time the Zapper was released, we already had a detachable controller situation, so it wasn't a problem. All right, kids, you have your research project for the day. Go figure it out. (laughs) In the middle of the year, Hudson Soft releases the game Load Runner, the classic Broderboon game that we've talked about before. They have a connection with Doug Carlston. Doug Carlston of Broderboond has a lot of connections with Japanese companies, Japanese developers, which is something we talked about in our Broderboond episode. Hudson Soft makes a deal with them to release Load Runner in Japan and release Load Runner on the Famicom in July 1984. The game is just a massive hit. For whatever reason, it really strikes a nerve with the Japanese public. Over its life, it sells a million units. It provides a great boost to the system in the middle of 1984. Then the real killer app comes out in November, because that's when Namco releases Xevious. We've talked about this before, because we've done a Namco episode, we've done some other episodes on arcades in this period. Xevious is a name that does not mean much in the United States. I mean, we've heard of it. We've played it. On our Commodore 64. Exactly. And the coin op was released in the United States as well. It was released right as the entire coin-operated video game market was collapsing. So it was not a failure, but it wasn't a big deal either. In Japan, it was a smash. It was probably the biggest thing in the arcades in Japan, maybe even since Space Invaders. Pac-Man did well in Japan, but it didn't do as well in Japan as it did in the U.S., Xevious is just a phenomenon. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it has a real sense of setting to it. Instead of being on this black space background, like so many of the shooting games were in this time period, it takes place on a planet, and it has full graphics of fields and forests and roads. There's stuff you can target on the ground as well. They're still primitive graphics compared to what we would think of as a cool-looking landscape today, but it was a landscape, a colorful landscape in a shooting game, which had never really been done. There was a consistency in the way the enemy forces were designed. It felt like they had a background and a story and a lore to them 
rather than being, let's throw some random things that look like this and then some random things that look like that. It felt like a coherent world, which is something that Japanese players, I think, in particular are very interested in, the atmosphere, the mood of a game, not just the gameplay of a game. The other thing that made Xevious kind of popular in this way is that there were a lot of secrets to discover. A lot of things that you could discover and blow up to get more points, to get higher scores, that kind of thing. It was a game that really caused communities to come together, game center communities to come together because people would swap secrets and share tips. It's very similar to how the fighting game boom hit a decade later because a big part of what made fighting games so successful, particularly in Japanese arcades, is they became a communal experience because people would find the secret moves because there's no instruction books. People would find combos that you could chain together that were particularly effective. There would actually be notebooks in the arcades where people would write down things that they learned about how the game worked so that the next person could come in and read the notebook and see what had been discovered and then try that stuff out against their next opponent. That was a big part of the fighting game boom. Xevious, obviously, is not a one-for-one comparison to that, but in the terms of having secrets to discover, it was kind of similar, and it created the sense of community. Xevious was quite simply massive. It had merchandising behind it. There were Xevious tournaments. The first video game soundtrack album, which of course has become a major genre in Japan. Video game soundtracks aren't that big a deal in the U.S., but in Japan they're a pretty big deal. Xevious was the first soundtrack album. It kind of launched that whole concept. So it was huge, and now it was on the Famicom, on the family computer. It's released in November. It sells 1.5 million units. It greatly accelerates Famicom sales. There are a lot of people that tell media outlets and whatnot, market researchers, that they bought a family computer so they could play Xevious. It really was the first killer app of the system. In 1984, Nintendo sells 1.66 million family computers. They sold 440,000 in the first year. They sell 1.66 million in the second year. They're already up at 2 million consoles sold by the end of the year. A lot of that can be laid at the feet of Loadrunner and Xevious. They have their first sellouts. Stock shortages start showing up in 1984. They start increasing production, first to 300,000 units a month, then to 400,000 units a month, and they still have trouble keeping up with demand. The next big thing that really affects them and the reason why these shortages continue and why the Famicom just keeps growing more and more over the next year is that in 1985, you get that new law that we have talked about several times that was very watershed in Japan, or rather it's not a new law, but it's a reform to the law that regulates so-called pleasure establishments, places that are frequented by adults, usually at night. Places like massage parlors, strip clubs, places that are largely tied to vice. In Japan, game centers end up kind of in the same category. And the main reason for that, as we've talked about before, is Japanese game centers ran 24 hours a day. They never closed back then. 
obviously no kid is supposed to be out at 3 a.m., so nobody's in there except the adults and the really bad actors that are dodging curfews and sneaking out at night. So game rooms have a very bad reputation in Japan, probably even worse than their reputation in the United States, and a lot of that has to do with their 24-hour operation. There were some limits on what children could do in game centers in the wake of Space Invaders, but they were relatively mild. Still enough to kind of shut down the invader boom, but relatively mild. This new revision to the law is much, much, much stricter. By the new law, all game centers in the country have to close at midnight. There will be no more 24-hour game centers. Anyone under 20 years of age will not be allowed to enter an arcade at all after 10 o'clock at night. 10 to 12 is adults only. Children under 16 years of age will not be allowed in arcades after 6 o'clock at night. Japanese school children, you know, they go to school until 3 or 4 in the afternoon, whatever it is. Then they often have clubs. They have other activities right after school. If you're saying that a kid can't go to a game center after 6 o'clock, you're basically saying the kids 16 years and under can't go to the game center at all. Maybe they can sneak in for an hour after clubs are over before they close down, but most likely not. At this point, you're basically throwing kids under 16 years old out of the game centers. So where are they going to go to play games now? How about the Famicom? The Family Computer. So this law in 1985 is a huge boost to Nintendo and a huge boost to the Famicom because now they have a captive audience. If younger kids want to play video games, they're not completely shut out from finding places that have coin-operated games. These laws apply to game centers. If there's a game in a location that's not a game center, they can still theoretically go there and play it, and they might still be able to sneak in some time on the games before 6 p.m., even with after-school activities. But a lot of these children that were spending their time in the game centers are now going to be doing the majority of their game playing on the Famicom. 1985 is the year this thing really blows up big. You've got the hit games starting to come out from the third parties. You have the restriction on game centers, meaning that kids have fewer options on how to get their video games. In 1985, there are 3.8 million Famicoms sold. In total or that year? That year. 3.8 million Famicoms sold in Japan. Remember, Japan is not nearly as big a country as the United States. 3.8 million units were getting to the point where they're in 15%, 20% of Japanese households. That is a really significant chunk of the population for a brand new product that's only in its third year on the market, its second full year, third total year. The companies that are involved in this are making money now hand over fist. At this point, there are six companies that have signed a license with Nintendo. Hudson Soft and Namco, which we already talked about. Konami, which isn't a big surprise because they were already releasing games on the MSX, so I'm sure they saw the opportunity here. Also, Jalico, Capcom, and Taito. These six companies had those favorable terms. They had those terms that were offered to Hudson and Namco. You have to pay a royalty, but other than that, we're not going to watch over you too closely. These companies make bank. If you look at the million sellers on the Famicom in Japan, the vast majority of them, from companies other than Nintendo itself, 
come from this time period, come from these early days. What kind of games are we looking at here? Well, the limitations of the Famicom dictate kind of a certain type of game. We talked about this a little in the last episode, but the graphics, the background graphics on the Famicom are created using tiles. So you have a tile set where you have these little individual like one by one or four by four or whatever tiles. And then you put these tiles together and create bigger blocks like eight by eight little graphical stamps. Then you basically repeat these stamps all over the screen to construct your background graphics. It's all tile-based. Tile-based graphics mean that you have to be really careful and can't have too much variety in your graphics. You can't have a lot of unique environments because tile sets take up a lot of memory. Early games had to fit within 32 kilobytes of ROM memory. That was the maximum cartridge size on the early games. Tile sets take up a lot of that memory because it's all graphics. You had to have a small number of tile sets, as small as you could get away with, and then have a lot of repeating elements. If you look at any NES game, you'll see that the stages tend to have a very similar background. I mean, if you're walking along in Castlevania, it, it kind of all looks the same in the background. There'll occasionally be a window that comes by, but it's everything is very samey in a particular stage. That's true, really, of all the early games, and it's because of this problem. If you look at Super Mario Brothers, if you look at the bushes in Super Mario Brothers, if you look at them really closely, you'll realize that the bushes look exactly the same as the clouds in Super Mario Brothers. With a shiny green coat of paint or white paint. Exactly, because it's the same graphics. Graphics are expensive. You have to reuse tiles as much as you can. These tile-based graphics lend themselves to games that are going to scroll along kind of quickly, where you're not really paying too much attention to the background. The background's there, but you want people to be focused on moving forward rather than admiring the background scenery. In the arcades at this time, shooters are very popular, but the NES also has problems when you have too many objects displayed on the screen at once. It can theoretically put a lot of sprites up on the screen at once, but if you put more than three or four on the screen at once, you get the dreaded Nintendo slowdown and flicker. We've all experienced this if we've played an NES game. Particularly in a certain Zelda game where you have dark nuts everywhere filling up the entire room with turrets sending fireballs every which way, you're pretty much doomed at that point unless you have like two potions. <laughs> That's right. Nintendo games, Famicom games were more suited to only having a small number of objects on the screen at once rather than a large number. Maybe only having two, three, four enemies on the screen at once to mess with. This meant that shooters were not the best way to do Famicom games. Now, there were, of course, many shooters on the Famicom. We talked about how Xevious was a big hit. Many shooters made it to the Famicom, but because of this limitation, it didn't make sense to have a game that was fast-scrolling and throwing a lot of objects at you at once, because that would slow down the hardware. I really think that this is a prime reason why character-based games very quickly became the most prevalent games on the system. Because a guy walking around, he's moving around more slowly. His enemies are moving around more slowly. It's not forced scrolling most of the time, because you kind of need to take your time more, and that allows the processor to not be so overtaxed. 
you're fighting a small number of enemies at a time rather than a large number, or you have enemies that are kind of constantly coming in. So even if you're only fighting one or two at a time, it can be something like, say, a Ninja Gaiden situation where the same enemy keeps leaping at you over and over again. I'm thinking of those army guys in level two where they leap at you and you kill that one and then another one leaps at you immediately after that. You know the guys I'm talking about. Ninja Gaiden in that particular case had a notorious problem of respawns. The threshold for a respawn or even just a regular spawn is very, very small. There was sort of this little small window where it would respawn an enemy and it had no kind of timer or already defeated it thing. So you could just stand in one spot and constantly have a bird, a bad guy, the army guy you were talking about coming at you over and over again. You could just sit there and just keep spamming your attack button, killing them. And until you move forward, getting past that spawn location, it would just keep doing it. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, it kind of emphasized these encounters with small groups of enemies, but perhaps sometimes also small groups of enemies that spawned almost as fast as you killed them. Because these things were not forced scrolling like a shooter, and because you were moving around with a character, if you were just moving left to right in a straight line, and you had just one or two or three enemies coming at you at a time, that isn't going to make for the most interesting gameplay. I mean, games like that exist. Kung Fu, for instance, which was a launch title in the U.S. For the most part, I know you can do jump kicks and whatnot, but for the most part, you're just walking in one direction, punching stuff coming at you from the other direction. I think, again, it's logical that the game design naturally moved towards, well, if we can't do much with the horizontal space with fast scrolling, we need to do something with the vertical space in order to make these areas more interesting. So I think that's why you get so many character-based platformers on the Famicom on the NES. That's why you get Mario, Castlevania, Mega Man, Ninja Gaiden, and all of these games that are some of the biggest hits is because that's really what the system does best. Keep them moving forward, keep them moving in a direction, but don't auto-scroll it. Only have a few enemies on the screen at a time, and then to make the levels more interesting, get that vertical space being used as well. If we look at the early games that were successful on the systems from other companies, that's really what we're seeing. Jalico, of all companies, I think they're considered a rather minor company today. I mean, they don't even exist anymore, but I'm just saying... People looking back today think of Jalico as a more minor company, but they had some major hits on the system right at the beginning with these kind of character-based scrolling games. They did one called Ninja Kid, which was an arcade game first and was ported to the Famicom. It became a best-selling game on the Famicom. Hudson Soft did a game called Ninja Hattori-kun. That's the Japanese name. I don't believe it was released in the United States. Based on a manga, it sold a million and a half copies when it came out in 1986. These companies that got on the system early were just raking it in, got to the point where Namco was more known as a Famicom publisher than it was known as an arcade company. I mean, it never stopped releasing games in the arcade and obviously had hits in the arcade during this period. But of the big three arcade companies in Japan, Sega Taito Namco, Namco was always framed as the one that, yeah, they're in coin-op, but where they're making their real money is on this Famicom thing. We already talked about what a big hit Xevious was for them. They also started a baseball series called Family Stadium. 
multiple entries in that series sold a million plus units. The first game in the series sold over two million units. Bandai, the toy company, was not quite one of these first six, but they came in very soon after. They had a couple of big hits as well, again, taking advantage of licenses in order to have that success. A lot of companies are seeing a lot of real success on the system. The system's getting bigger and bigger, and more and more companies want to get involved. So at this point, Yamauchi alters the deal. Pray he does not alter it further. Well, he did obviously alter the deal in the United States. Well, he did in Japan as well, which is, I think, not as well known in the West. Those first six companies, Hudson Soft, Namco, Konami, Jalico, Capcom, and Taito, they were able to hold on to their terms for a while. But every other company that came in after that have restrictions. Nintendo is going to manufacture all of the cartridges. In fact, I believe they even take cartridge manufacturing out of the hands of the privileged six that before were able to manufacture their own cartridges. Their official reason for doing it is that they said that there needed to be standardization in the cartridges because there had been a company, and they didn't name it, that had released a cartridge that didn't actually fit the slot properly and actually damaged the console. That's how they framed it in public, is that in the interest of uniformity, they had to do all the manufacturing. Now, of course, they could have just had final approval over the cartridges and had the same effect. That wasn't the real reason. That was just the way to sell it. The real reason was they wanted to be in control. They set a minimum 10,000-unit order in order to have a game manufactured. They charged between 1,600 and 1,800 yen per game manufactured in order to do the manufacturing, which was more than Nintendo's costs. So they weren't doing it for cost. They were making a profit, a small profit, on the manufacture of every single unit. Again, they couched this in other terms. They said, well, we have component suppliers. We have to pay component suppliers in advance. Because there's always money coming in and going out, we always have to make sure that we have enough cash on hand to do manufacturing. And that's why we have to have minimum orders. And that's why we have to charge more than the cost of the cartridge in order to make sure that that whole supply chain doesn't fall apart. Again, it's not so much about supply chains. It's about controlling the market, and it's about taking a cut from everybody. So now everyone has to pay a licensing fee. Everyone has to pay a manufacturing fee. These are terms that become very standard in the video game industry as time goes on, but Nintendo here is inventing them right now. They also restrict companies. Even in Japan, they restrict companies from releasing more than three games a year. It's a misconception in the United States, that these restrictions were only in North America. But they actually had these restrictions in Japan, too, and they initially set the number at three. Again, not for the original six, who were still operating under old terms, but for anyone else coming in. They eventually boost this to five. There's some contradiction, as Gorge points out. We don't know exactly how all of Nintendo's rules work, because Nintendo was very secretive. Even in Japan, with Japanese speakers, it can be hard to get this information in interviews and whatnot. As Gorge points out, we know these terms could not have been universally enforced, because Bandai was not one of the original six, and Bandai was definitely releasing more than five games a year in Japan. 
whether Nintendo came to some accommodations with specific publishers or whether publishers were going the same route that Konami did at the U.S., establishing sub-labels and subsidiaries to get around the rules and publish more games. Don't know the full story there. But we can say that the restrictions did exist in Japan, but they may not have always been rigorously enforced. They did not apply to those first six, the so-called privilege six that got in early. Later, when those licensing agreements came up for renewal, because they were not perpetual agreements, they were licensing agreements for a number of years, Nintendo turned the screws on those companies and made them conform to the new licensing agreement as well. It caused a fallout with Namco that took decades to repair because Masaya Nakamura considered himself, you know, the king of the roost. Namco arcade games were some of the most popular games in arcades. Namco Famicom games like Xevious were probably the reason that the Famicom even broke out as big as it did. He felt that the special privileges were warranted for his company because of all they brought to the table, and Yamauchi would not budge. Namco stopped supporting the Famicom and did not support Nintendo systems for a long time thereafter. Namco games still appeared on the Famicom, of course, because they couldn't really let go of that whole market, but they were normally released by third-party publishers that they gave the licensing to. They were not released by Namco itself for this reason. They also focused a lot of energy on Nintendo's competitors, the PC Engine when it came out, the Genesis, Mega Drive in Japan, and then, of course, the Sony PlayStation, where Ridge Racer and Tekken were instrumental to the early success of the PlayStations. Nintendo made an enemy with that one, but they exercised an ironclad grip. The one thing that they did not do in Japan that they did in the U.S. is they didn't regulate content. They wouldn't let pornographic material on the system. I mean, they did have that line, but they didn't regulate content as closely as the U.S. did, where extreme violence and religious symbolism and stuff that was too risque was not allowed on the system. But everything else they actually did in Japan. Everyone that came on board from 85 on had to to do these stricter terms. Obviously, people were not happy, but people were definitely still making money. Then, of course, the other big thing that happens in 1985 is Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers is just leaps and bounds beyond what anyone else has done on the system. It was conceived as a swan song to cartridges because Nintendo was moving on to the disk system, which we're going to talk about in a second. They were going to go away from cartridges. Cartridges were not going to be a thing anymore. So Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka conceived of Mario Brothers as a love letter to everything they had learned on how to make cartridge games. It was going to have side-scrolling action platforming. It was going to have underwater swimming. It was going to have shoot-em-up stages in the sky. Those obviously got cut, but they were going to be there. It was going to have all sorts of different enemies, as many different kinds of graphics as they could pile into a 32-kilobyte cartridge, as many different types of backgrounds, just everything they could possibly do. As we talked about before and don't really need to talk about again here, it was just brilliant. It became the prototype for how you wanted to do a scrolling platformer on that system. It was a massive hit. It sold 3 million copies right out the gate after being released in September of 85. It propelled the system to new heights as they moved into 1986, and it kept that uh, success going. Though, as I said, the market was already starting to change. There were a few reasons for this. 
first of all, they were running up against the limits on what they could do with cartridges. Cartridges were 32 kilobytes. It was simply too expensive to do more than that. They'd already had to raise the price once. They had started out, as I said, at 3,800 yen. They had to raise cartridges to over 4,000 yen as the price of components went up and as more sophisticated components went in. Breaking that 32 kilobyte barrier was going to require cartridges to get a lot more expensive. This was a particular problem because visual novels were becoming more and more popular in Japan. What we would today call visual novels, they weren't really visual novels yet back then. The visual novel format kind of developed a little later, but adventure games, essentially, with elaborately drawn backgrounds and and menus and items and solving things. These kind of games were becoming more and more popular on Japanese computer platforms, and you just were not going to be able to get these kind of games onto the Famicom very easily because of the memory limitations. RPGs, you had a similar kind of problem. You didn't have the big JRPG boom yet. Dragon Quest isn't out yet, but you're starting to get RPGs on PC platforms, and those just aren't going to translate well into the cartridge. It's reaching the limit of its creativity. There's only so much you can do in that space, only so many levels, only so many backgrounds, only so many enemies. They need to move forward, but they need to move forward in a way that isn't going to be super expensive. Then their partner Hudson Soft comes to them with an idea. Hudson Soft is an unusual company because they have people that are experts at both software and hardware. They have hardware designers on their staff, even though they're a computer game and Famicom game publisher. They come to them with this great idea that they have developed to use a little card, which they call the B card. B is in B-E-E because the B is the symbol of Hudson Soft, which is this little card with RAM on it. You can put a much bigger game on it. If a person gets tired of that game, it's RAM, so you can erase that game and replace it with another game. They can go to a kiosk somewhere or something and swap out games for an even cheaper price. Masuki Uemura sees this as a good way out of the quandary that they're having with cartridges, and he starts to work on a system using this technology, but he very quickly rejects it for two reasons. First of all, it turns out because it does use RAM memory, even though it initially looked like it would probably be a nice cheaper technology, it's actually going to end up being more expensive because RAM's more expensive than ROM. Second of all, they would have been beholden to Hudson as the holder of the patent of this technology. They would have had to pay patent royalties to Hudson. That was just a non-starter. But Hudson approaching them with this card system got them thinking about, okay, we should look at alternate media. We need to use something other than cartridges in order to keep the system viable. So they looked at a different format called QuickDisk. QuickDisk is a floppy disk format, but it's not a standard PC floppy disk format. It actually stores the data in a spiral and almost reads it in the same way that a record player reads a record. You know, you drop the needle and it starts at the outside of the record and moves its way in. That's how the quick disk worked as well. Now, it wasn't a needle, obviously. I mean, this is a magnetic medium. But it's the same idea that instead of the disk spinning around and you reading various sectors on the spinning disk, it instead reads in a spiral pattern which actually allows it to have a pretty quick load time. I think it's more linear than a standard floppy disk, but it allows it to also seek faster as well because it's seeking on a specific path instead of jumping around sectors looking for information. It's a much bigger format than the 32-kilobyte cartridge. 
it can hold a maximum of 112 kilobytes of information. That's a nice big jump. Exactly. It's a two-sided disk format, but even one side of the disk can hold 56 kilobytes. So even if you want to make a game where you don't want the person swapping from side A to side B, it's still significantly more than a 32 kilobyte cartridge. It's a format created by a company called Mitsumi Electric. And I don't know the details of this, but I don't think they would have had to pay a royalty to use it, or maybe the royalty wouldn't have been as big. I don't know. It's a higher capacity system. It is rewritable, which means that if a person wants to put another game on it, they can erase the game that's on it and go to a kiosk and put another game on it. It's also going to be a lot cheaper. You can sell the discs for 2,500 yen each, which is, by this point, around half the cost of a cartridge. After you have a disc, and if you want to put another game on it by going to a kiosk someplace, games without the disc will only cost 500 yen each, which is truly a benefit to the consumer. So they decide to do this, and they release the Famicom Disk System in 1986. At the same time that Miyamoto and Tezuka were creating their final love letter to cartridges, Super Mario Brothers, they were developing their first game for the new disc medium, The Legend of Zelda. They literally created these games at the same time, even though one came out much sooner than the other. The Famicom disc system had additional sound capabilities, so music could be more impressive, something that The Legend of Zelda took full advantage of. The Famicom Disk System being a writable medium would allow for saving for the very first time in a Famicom game, which The Legend of Zelda took full advantage of. What? No passcodes? That's right. It could be a bigger game world. They were able to create this 256-screen overworld and this 256-screen dungeon layer, which, because they had so many, is why they decided to do the first and second quests, because they found that they only would use about half of those 256 tiles to make the dungeons for the quest. So they're like, well, we'll do a second quest and use the other half to create new dungeons. Bigger, better, bolder, the sense of exploration that you really couldn't get in a Famicom game before. It launches with the system. They sell 600,000 Famicom disk systems in the first six months or so of release. They sell 500,000 copies of The Legend of Zelda. It's not quite one-to-one, but it's pretty darn close. And in fact, there was such a shortage of Legend of Zelda discs because it was so popular that, remember, they also, as we briefly discussed, released these kiosks where you could buy new games. People would buy random disk system games. They didn't care. They would just buy a disk system game so that they could immediately turn around and overwrite it with Zelda because there was no shortage of going to a kiosk and just downloading the software. It's a real problem I hear for collectors who think that they found some incredible Famicom disk system game that they didn't have yet because the label for the game is whatever and then they plug it in and they realize it's just The Legend of Zelda because somebody had bought it and immediately overwrote it with The Legend of Zelda. I'm sure none of them were thinking at the time this is going to be a nightmare for collectors down the line. At the time, all they're thinking about is, I want a game come hell or high water. The Famicom Disk System is a smashing success. For something that's such a success, we never got it over here. That's right, because even though it was incredibly successful, sold a couple million units, there were real, real problems with it from the perspective of the retailer and the publisher. 
Yes, these discs were much, much cheaper, but that also meant that the profit margins were much, much smaller. Even though their manufacturing costs at Nintendo were cheaper for a disc than they were for a cartridge, because the discs were so much cheaper at retail, their margins were slashed by a lot. We're supposed to be making games that are bigger and more impressive than the games we were making before, and we're literally supposed to make less money on them? That would be a non-starter for a lot of developers. And then you get to retail. So they have these kiosks where you can overwrite the game for a cheap price, right? For almost half the price of a cartridge. So then retail, if they deign to put a kiosk in their store, which a lot of times they have to just because the people want the games, their margins on those re-ups are like nothing. They're not getting anything, hardly. When people go to a kiosk and overwrite a game with a new game, they don't get to make another physical sale on that. So retailers really don't like the kiosks. Some Western commentators say that the reason that Nintendo went away from it is because they realized that a disc medium was more piratable than a cartridge medium. That's really not true. They had protections. They had both hardware and software protections on that Famicom disk system to reduce piracy. Now, I'm sure some piracy still happened, but it wasn't the same as copying floppy disks on PC platforms. There were protections in place that made that fairly complicated. So piracy wasn't really the issue. The issue was the retailers and publishers were in open revolt because of this darn margins that were so tiny. That incentivized other companies to figure out their own ways to improve cartridges. Capcom comes out with Ghosts and Goblins in 1986, their port of their hit arcade game from the year before. They released that on a one megabyte cartridge. It's the first one megabyte cartridge. Is it more expensive than putting it out on a disc? Of course it is. But retailers are very happy to have their margins back. Publishers are really happy to have their margins back. The kids want the game, so even if it's more expensive, since it's not on the disc system, they're going to shell out for the cartridge. That's kind of the beginning of the end of the disc system. A few months later, Konami comes out with Ganberi Gomon, the first game in that series, a series called Legend of the Mystical Ninja in the West. I don't think we got the NES game in the West, but we got a Super NES, Legend of the Mystical Ninja. They put out the first Ganberi Gomon game later that same year and also use a one megabyte cartridge. Plus, the battery backup gets invented. Of course, we didn't get The Legend of Zelda in the West on disc. We got it on cartridge, and we could still save, and that's because they put a lithium-ion battery in there to power a little bit of RAM that you could save your game to. So that got rid of that advantage. I have a little bit of an interesting story about that. Mm -hmm. I had to fire up my original Legend of Zelda game a few months ago, and it still had my save on it. That's pretty impressive. A lot of them don't. My Legend of Zelda, I haven't booted it up in a very long time, so I don't know if mine still works, but mine was from 1990 is when I bought it. So it's a little newer than the first ones that came out in 87. Maybe it might still work. Mine is a gold edition. Mine is as well. It was still gold cartridges in 1990. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's impressive. With the battery backup, that got rid of that advantage. Well, companies also came up with new daughter chips that they could put directly on the cartridges, like the Castlevania series. Castlevania 3 has a sound chip in it in Japan. I I don't think they used the sound chip in the U.S. They did not. I thought they didn't. But in Japan, Castlevania 3 has a sound chip in it to give it more impressive music. 
there's another advantage of the disk system that's gone away. The only advantage the disk system has now is really the price of the games, but that advantage is an advantage that retailers and publishers are not interested in. They want the more expensive medium so that the prices are higher and they get more royalty money. So in the face of all this resistance and technological advancement combined, Nintendo backs off the system and they never release it in the U.S. They go back to making games on cartridges as well, which of course are now on cartridges that are even way bigger than the quick discs in the disc system. 1986 is the peak year of the system. It sells 3.9 million units in 86. It sold 3.8 million the year before, so it's just slightly higher, but it is higher. 1986 is also the year of Dragon Quest, which brings the RPG. Now that we have bigger cartridge sizes, we can start having these more expansive role-playing experiences that we've seen on computer platforms, except streamlined and tailored in a way that makes them perfect for console platforms. We talked about that in The Birth of JRPG, about how Dragon Quest synthesized these elements. By this point, you have a situation where the market is getting pretty close to saturated on hardware. They're in like a quarter of Japanese homes. Not every home has children. You can't really hope to get much more than that. After 86, the platform starts to slowly decline. Other competitors get into the market. Hudson Soft, because Nintendo wouldn't do their card idea, they were like, well, then we'll just create our own card-based system with Blackjack and Hookers. And they partner with NEC to do the PC engine. Sega comes out with its Mega Drive. I mean, they'd been competing with Nintendo all along. They had the Mark I and the Mark II and the Mark III, but they take that leap into 16-bit graphics. There's more competition. More people have systems. Software sales kind of go down a little bit, too. There was kind of a dirty little secret to why some of the early games sold so well and why the number of games bought per individual in Japan was much higher than that in the United States. That dirty little secret was in the early days of the Famicom, in the 84-85 period when there were real shortages of the system and people were desperate to get their hands on a system, retailers solved the problem of increasing number of publishers, increasing number of games, and not all of those games selling so well by doing forced bundling. They would tell people, if you want a Famicom, unfortunately, we are backordered for like two or three weeks. But I have this bundle right now where if you buy the Famicom and these five games, not five games of your choice, specifically these five games, I can sell you a Famicom today. You know, it's it's always kind of a wonder when you look and it's like, how did Japan support so many tiny little publishers and how did so many little games get released and continue to get released without flooding the market and destroying the market? And that's the dirty little secret of it. A lot of them were forced bundles where the retailers made consumers take the games that weren't selling well as part of bundles. Do you happen to know if they actually did that with game packs themselves? Did they say, oh, Dragon Quest is coming out? We are backordered on that, but if you buy Dragon Quest (laughs) and Golf and Donkey Kong Math and these other games, we can give you that game right now. (laughs) To my knowledge, they didn't do that with games. I don't think they would have had quite the leverage to do that with games as with the hardware itself, because they could at least try to make the argument that, look, it's a real bargain for you. You get a lot of games with your system that you can start playing right away, where you can't really make the value proposition You can only buy this cartridge with other cartridges. 
But that is part of the secret of, of why that happened. Well, once the system had become more saturated and you didn't have the same shortages, then those bundling practices became less common and so fewer games were being sold as well. The Famicom did not fall off a cliff. It continued to sell after 1986, but 1983, the launch through 1986, is what's called the Famicom boom. After that, it started its slow journey towards obsolescence. But of course, that's the exact moment it was starting to become big in the United States. When we think of the Famicom and the NES and the big sellers, we think of the Castlevania games and the Mega Man games and all of this kind of thing. And some of those games sold okay in Japan as well, but those aren't the best-selling games on the Famicom. No Mega Man game sold a million units in Japan. No Castlevania game sold a million units in Japan. Gradius, which was a big hit in Japan, did manage to just hit a million units in Japan. But based on its popularity in the arcade, it should have sold so much more than that, considering how many systems were in circulation. The games that were huge in the U.S., other than, I mean, Nintendo's games were always huge no matter where they were. Super Mario Bros. 3 was big in Japan and the United States. But the games we think of as the classics in the U.S. were not nearly so successful in Japan because they were released too late in the light of the system. It was on its slow, slow decline. That's kind of an overview. That's really as far as we wanted to go. That's kind of an overview of the launch of the Famicom, the early struggles, why it overcame those early struggles to become successful, and then finally, at the end of the day, how it peaked at the time of the Famicom disk system and then entered a bit of a decline. It is different from the American perspective of the system. We kind of view it here as a mid-80s, late-80s, maybe even a little bit early-90s system. A lot of the early Famicom games that came over to the United States, I include myself in this when I sort of look at them and go, what the heck is this? The Nintendo is so much more capable. However, with this kind of perspective, you can understand why a lot of the early games were very restrictive from a gameplay and graphical standpoint. Though one thing that I find fascinating about the difference between the United States and Japan is how they supported the console. In the United States, pretty much once the Super Nintendo came out, you were pretty much done. However, in Japan, they supported it all the way up until somewhere in the 2000s, I think. All the way to 2003, that's correct. Well, actually, the servicing even lasted after 2003 for another several years after that. 2003 is when they stopped selling the system. You could still get a system in very limited circumstances up through 2003 in Japan. There were still hugely successful games after that. I mean, Super Mario Bros. 3 was a smash hit in 1988. Dragon Quest 3 caused such a commotion on launch day that the Diet told Japanese companies, it's time to stop releasing big games on the weekdays, thank you very much. It's not like the Famicom was suddenly dead after 86. If you look at the trajectory, fewer systems were sold every year after that. That was the peak year. And fewer games were selling lots and lots of units. Basically, the Dragon Quest series continued to sell massive amounts of units. Anything that Nintendo put out in its major series, like Zelda and Mario, continued to sell millions of units. But almost nothing else did. There came to be a bigger focus on licensed titles of various anime, manga, other media properties because those had a built-in sales base that you could get a lot out of. 
New games continued to be released until early 1994. Adventure Island 4 was the last one in early 94. Companies were still making money on the system. It's just the boom was over. You couldn't just throw any old thing into the market and sell half a million units or a million units. There was competition, and it was just slowly working its way out. That isn't to say that it stopped being successful in 86. It was successful for several years after that. Well, that was a fascinating two-part look at the Famicom, really focusing in the first part with the development of the system, all the challenges and heartache, and then in the second part showing just really how versatile this system turned out to be. Oh, yeah. Even though the Famicom disk system didn't turn out to be the great hit that they wanted it to be, it was still instrumental in leading the industry to where it needed to end up going. And I think that the Nintendo is kind of unique, especially in Japan. Famicom having such a slow fall led it to having such a long life, one where you can see such primitive graphics and some very impressive things later on in the system. Mm -hmm. All that's left is to know what we are going to cover in our next episode. Well, I suppose since we spent a little bit of time in Japan, it's time that we maybe focus on another geographic region a little bit. In particular, I thought we might go back to the British Isles and take a look at what was one of the largest software publishers, uh, video game publishers, in Britain in the 80s and early 90s, that being Ocean Software. We've looked at a couple of British companies. We definitely haven't looked at as many of the big companies as we have in, say, the United States. That seems like a ripe topic to mine a little bit. Back over the ocean for software next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. I see a few fans have found the secret archives of things. You too can still get your stickers. Just email jeffrey at theycreateworlds.com with your address where I need to send it to and you'll get some stickers for free at least five when you get them post some stuff and tag us on Twitter or something I'd love to see how you use them bye bye <laughs>